Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. James Curcio is a writer, editor, visual artist, and musician from Philadelphia. His published work includes the novels Join My Cult and The Party at the World's End, and he's currently putting the finishing touches on an illustrated novel titled Tales from When I Had a Face, soon to be released. Recently, James edited a nonfiction anthology entitled Masks, Bowie and Artists of Artifice, published by Intellect Books earlier this year boasting an eclectic list of contributors, including notably Slavoj Žižek and John Gray. Masks also contains memorable interviews with Gary Lachman and David DeAngelis, all on the theme of the masks or personae that artists must create as phantoms that haunt their work and all too often that haunt them. The book's many streams converge on the phenomenon that was David Bowie, whose death in January of 2016 led James to think deeply on the interplay of fact and fiction in the modern artist's life. It is well known that Bowie wore many masks, and for James, he was the opportunity to reflect on the concept of the mask as the principal figure of an aesthetic universe. In this 70th episode of Weird Studies, James joins us to discuss his own contribution to the book, a long-form essay titled Masks All the Way Down. Together, we explore the complex relationship of persona and identity art and artifice, fact and fiction in the contemporary imagination. For the truth is that nowadays, as we spend more and more time amidst the artifice of digital spaces, the ambiguities of public self and the private soul of face and mask that preoccupied Bowie throughout his career as a media figure have become a problem that each of us must confront in our own way. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So you do a lot of different things. You do music. You're an art, like a, an illustrator, comic book artist, writer, fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. I mean, it's probably all a function of ADD, undiagnosed, but yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we read the chapter that you wrote for the Masks book, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But the, the part that we were thinking of focusing on is the second section of the chapter, was it stiff on my legend? Is that what it right. is? Yeah, the one that focuses yeah. on Bowie. Yeah, the one that focuses on Bowie. Just because we've been meaning to discuss Bowie for a while, and you seem to be the, like the oh. man to one of them. Anyways, there's a lot of Bowie aficionados out there, but yeah, yeah, right. I liked your take on the whole Black Star thing, and uh, mm-hmm. that's really what gelled. That's what gelled it for me was Black Star. I mean, it was like right. him coming in with his you know final work, kind of just bookending his entire career and. It was right. 
Yeah. Even though, I mean, there was a lot of debunking about it. Oh, he he was planning on doing other stuff. It wasn't really, but I I think that's kind of all. That's kind of all beside the point because mm-hmm. of the way art works. You know, it, there's a lot of weird synchronicity, and maybe in a sense, he was always talking about his death. Yeah, know, he was always planning ahead on investing on that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and um, and you can really feel that in Black Star for sure. The videos I watched them again today as I was preparing for this and they, they're just so mind blowing, such beautiful pieces of cinema. And, um, somehow David Bowie feels very germane to the situation, the context in which we're talking. I don't know exactly why or how, but this whole situation we're in right now, this whole kind of apocalyptic mood that's been kind of thrust on us seems kind of germane to our topic. I mean, I think it's, you know, maybe not in terms of, you know, coronavirus in particular, but just in terms of the sort of cultural point that we're at right now. Like I commented in the book, he's was well aware of uh, kind of where the internet was going before a lot of people were, you know, like a lot of the early adopters was kind of maybe overly optimistic in hindsight, but he definitely recognized that it was going to change everything. And I think a lot of people that, you know, that point in time were still being kind of like, oh yeah, internet, that's kind of like a, a weird little side thing for like nerds. Um mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it changed everything, and he was well aware of how how our identities would be tied into it and change. And I think that's very germane to what's been going on. I mean, right. um, as corporations have become more integrated in sort of our identities, honestly, online, you know, we all signal to each other through the media we consume and how we relate to everything. Everyone's got to have a take, um, and that's how you position yourself and who you are. Um, and of course, these are all sort of accelerations of things that we already do socially it being, you know, kind of controlled or at least managed by algorithms has definitely changed things, which I think is why there's been a sea change since 2010 or so, um, because algorithms have become more and more a part of it. Right. Um, and I think he was, I mean, he did some of his work kind of even comments on that, you know, sort of on the, the way that computers condition our responses to these things. Um, and in a way, he kind of had a preview of it because... Being as involved as he was, like many other rock stars, but he was he's different in the sense that he was so aware of what was going on, right? And you mentioned this at one part in your essay. You talk about like T-Rex, right? Mm-hmm. What was the name of the guy? Bolin. Right, yeah. Bolin. He didn't have the acumen, you know, like to to realize what he was do, what he was playing with. Uh this whole play with persona and masks and archetypes and all that. Whereas Bowie seemed to be fairly grounded even when he i mean he did get lost and you go into that and he he gambled a lot but in the end what i love about bowie and this is the bowie i grew to love because i got into bowie much later um i liked him when i was a kid i I liked legend and stuff right but and i I liked uh space oddity but in my 20s i kind of got interested in in him as an artist and um what impressed me was how by that point how grounded he was and how he had successfully kind of grown down not just grown up but grown like grown down into himself and being able to like separate all these archetypes kind of like a classic case of Jungian individuation in a way or at least that was Mm -hmm. my impression at the time that he somehow managed to beat this thing yeah um so my point was just that what we're experiencing now all of us in this time this era of like simulation and of identity creation and quote unquote soul making and through these algorithmic channels and all that he had experienced already right in a way like he kind of lived mm-hmm. in that McLuhan-esque space before most of us did anyways yeah no absolutely and so in a way it can mm-hmm. be kind of a guide 
for for people who are sort of entering it for the first time. <laughs> yeah, entering it knowingly at any rate. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. sort of like fishes becoming aware of the water that they're swimming in. Mm -hmm. Right. You know the. The word identity has come up and, and of course, was always going to come up in any conversation about either David Bowie or the internet <laughs> uh, or, the, or the age that we live in. There's something very interesting that I've seen in intellectual life. A lot of the sort of original impulse of the turn towards identity as a dominant trope in contemporary progressive politics and uh, kind of, I don't know, metapolitical thinking, like people's hot takes on movies or whatever, which is always sort of coming from some investment in that set of political commitments. You know, the origin for a lot of it was uh, Judith Butler, and particularly on the gender end of things and the idea of performativity. Uh, it was not long ago that the word performative was only ever used by academics and literary types. Uh, but now it's just part of the, the discourse. Sure. In fact, the word discourse is now part, <laughs> part of, of the discourse. discourse. Yeah. <laughs> um, of, of course, these things also change in meaning when they get kind of subsumed by mainstream discourse. Um, well, and this is where I was going, because I was like, you know, when Judith Butler is talking about the performativity of one's gender identity, is talking about it as something that is a, a fiction. It's masks and it's something that you're constructing. Of course, as you remark in that piece that we've read, it, that doesn't mean it isn't real, but nevertheless, the insistence on understanding things that we formerly understood as immutable aspects of just who we are, uh, as being to some extent things that we are acting out, those things exist because we act upon them. But at the same time as that idea has been circulating, even as much as that has sort of motivated this mass cultural discourse of identity, that discourse itself often seems to be a kind of fierce doubling, tripling down on the idea of entity as something that really exists in all of the naive and defended or reactionary ways that gender theory and all the rest of it was trying to dismantle. That somehow we've fallen back into a ironclad notion of identity, of who I am is something that you have to protect as you go out in the world and you have to assert that identity against other identities. There's this kind of instability around the very idea of identity. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Honestly, if we want to connect it to the internet, and I think there's at least some part of it is is connected to the internet and the way we socialize each other there is that there's no such thing as a sil as silence there. And there, you have to assert yourself, you have to assert your position, your identity through expressing a position. And, and that becomes a part of who you are, who you think of yourself as. It's almost like your, you know, your avatar picture or whatever. And it becomes harder and harder to think of that as, you know, something that's not essentially you, you know, immutably you. I think that's very hard to get away from. And you wind up getting stuck in these sort of reactionary positions, even if you're also taking a, you know, what's considered a fairly, you know, liberal or leftist or whatever you want to call it, you know, take with your identity. You know, like just to think of this in kind of McLuhan-esque terms, and I'm not even sure if that's the right reference, but what seems to have happened with mass media and then followed by like the, the internet is a kind of externalization of stuff that was internal, a, a, a making public of the private so that you're you're doing your inner 
business, your thinking and your your positioning and stuff in kind of a public space. So it it you're vulnerable. It, it just seems to me like I've always been really hesitant to post anything on the internet because it's like a little Lego block in this construct that I'm making that whether I like it or not is tied to this body, this entity, and that I have to be very careful and tailor. And it's, it's, it's a dangerous space. And the more you invest in that space, the more defensive you need to be in order to construct a kind of like stable identity in that, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? It's kind know, of like, I yeah. I do. Although the flip side of that um, is something, I mean, I probably encountered this sort of what I call the paradox of the mask, probably through the internet more than fame, at least originally. Um, in terms of how we construct our, our identities online, I was, you know, quote unquote, early adopter in the chat rooms, IRC, and then live journal. And people would create these, you know, ideas of who I was based on that. And then you kind of encounter them in real life. And it's almost like a shock sometimes, you know, not because they don't live up to it or whatever, but because of this mismatch, this sort of category mismatch. And I think we sort of carry around in our head this idea of who, you know, each of us, each of everyone else is, you know, and, and, yeah, it winds up being tied into the artist life a lot because of the fact that you know the older form of this was you know when you construct yourself through the work you put out in the world. Um, I think that's you know that's obviously the overlap back into Bowie, but really into into any artist and a lot of newer artists engage with this too. I don't know if you know Poppy, um, but she plays with this sort of thing a lot as a pop star. Hmm. Um, okay, well let's talk about the mask because the, the, the concept of the mask which you developed in this piece. Where are you right now with that that thought, that idea? Um, well, I think it's it's worth pointing out that the concept of it isn't it isn't like you're playing a role where you put a mask on your face and it's not your real face and your real face is underneath it and you can take it off. You know, it's much more of this idea that well, as the first chapter is called "Masks All the Way Down." Um, you can keep stripping off layers and you'll learn something new, something quote unquote real from each layer, or at least in terms of how they relate to each other. But there's no fixed center you know yeah so you don't believe yeah. there is a fixed center um i mean in the simplest terms no you know there are things that are quote unquote more real than others in terms of ourselves or in terms of the world certainly um but you know i'm definitely not an essentialist i'm much more of a nominalist in that way right. um you know and i think there's kind of a deep philosophical truth hiding behind that about there being no you know, center point to, to the world, you know, especially in terms of our sort of the dichotomy between um, a social reality and sort of what we might call material reality. I don't know if I want to call it material or not, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's that, that difference between if someone throws a brick at your head and, you know, like it's going to hit you, it doesn't matter what you call it, it doesn't matter what you think about it, that's what's going to happen um, versus, you know, when someone's called a priest or a cop or something and our society recognizes it as such, you know, materially, there's nothing different about that person than anyone else, but they have certain sort of abilities or whatever that are confirmed by society that we consider real. This gets at that a lot, too, because the masks of our identity are much more related to social identity and to social interactions between people than that sort of other realm. So it's important to kind of make a distinction between, um, I mean, what in philosophical terms would be um, ontological, you know, truth versus, you know, what's aesthetic considered, you know, surface, although I as I go through the aesthetic is not just to be kind of relegated to the, you know, art world. It's a part of our everyday lives. Yeah. That's where you end up, right? It's mm -hmm. that the aesthetic is, 
and this is something that obviously resonates with with Phil and me very deeply, the idea of an aesthetic universe and the idea of a... Yeah, the, the idea of masks all the way down, it implies a kind of aesthetic universe because, I mean, there's a kind of a dualism that uh, I think we're all relatively practiced in, which is the difference between, you know, representation and reality, you know, a picture of something and then the thing itself, or maybe more abstractly, the aesthetic and the real, that the aesthetic is the prettying up or decoration of something real. So, you know, a painting of sunflowers, for example, is not actually a field of sunflowers, which, you know, is obviously true. However, if we're talking about human identity, as masks and saying, you know, it sort of masks all the way down. Um, there is, from a certain point of view, no real me, just different masks, different performances, different aesthetic representations. But <laughs> even as I say, representation, representation suggests that it's the representation of something, that it's dependent upon something. But here we're talking about an idea of representation without a referent, without uh, something to start it off. And this suggests that it's not just masks all the way down, but it's artifice. Or, and, and I don't mean artifice in the sense that J.F. develops the term in his book, um, but expression perhaps is a word that I'm looking for. It's expression all the way down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there are, there are references, but they aren't grounded references. Like There's references between, you know, one quote-unquote mask and another, but um, there's always an uncertainty about them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, there's, no yeah. there's no central one. This gets to a problem that's been around for a while, and it's particularly insistent problem in Buddhism, the idea of self and no self, which you mentioned, the idea of anatta. But we dabbled with it, yeah. Yeah, the basic notion of Buddhism, which is that there is no unchanging essential self. Uh, now, it's interesting because on the one hand, that means that for instance, all of the talk about identity that is, as I said earlier on, defended this more kind of bulletproof or armor-plated idea of identity seems to be a, almost a compensatory fantasy. It's almost as if technology is showing us exactly the way in which we're just the sort of tissue of different aesthetic events or aesthetic moments. And that's like extremely disconcerting. And so we double down, triple down, insist upon the absolute bedrock reality of our identity. And, you know, if you're a Buddhist and you're looking at that, you're like, yeah, well, you're doubling down on a certain kind of suffering that mm -hmm. you're going to get. Because when you have, feel like you have something to defend, then you've got something to worry about. But then at the same time, there's also a kind of a instability, even within Buddhism, a sort of feeling of like, yeah, but there is something like, mm -hmm. you know, Zen Buddhism tends to be a little bit against the idea of rebirth, but most other strains of Buddhism have some notion of reincarnation or rebirth. And it's a perennial question. What is the thing then that's being reborn? And I've heard people like try to, to parse it out in ways that you have a kind of a halfway position. I don't want to get into that. It gets technical. But the point is that even in a tradition that from, you know, the fifth century BCE has been saying there is no settled sense of self, that sense of self, it's like a ghost that can't quite be exercised. It keeps mm -hmm. coming back. You know what I mean? I do. I mean, Nagarjuna tried to undo that, but I don't, I don't you know, you can use logic only yeah. so far. 
it's funny because actually what, what you're saying is exactly the reason why I don't call myself a Buddhist. I mean, I feel very in line with a lot of ideas that I've gotten from Buddhism, but one of the things that makes me feel like not like I can claim that is uh, that this exact issue about the self and about reincarnation and what is it that reincarnates, you know, and of course, Zen was a little more appealing um, because of that reason um, and Taoism too. Um, hmm. It's the sort of thing I think that we, I mean, we get more out of wrestling from than we're going to ever find a final solution. And I guess that's again implied and messed all the way down. You know, it's, there's something to be said for wrestling with these things and not, and not seeing it as being sort of just pat. There is no identity. There is an identity. You have to kind of get into the sort of nitty gritty of it in your own experience. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, but there's not, there, there isn't unfortunately an easy answer. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be difficult. Yeah. Like you're supposed to wrestle with that kind of a thing. It irritates me actually when people say too easily, there's no such thing as identity. Mm. Uh, as, as much as it irritates when, when people say too easily, there is an identity. I know perfectly well what it is and I'm going to defend that. Like, how are you so certain? I mean, this is the thing that oftentimes throws me off is when people would think that I'll, I'll say something and think people will think that I'm kind of, that's like who I am. And like, you know, a little while later, I'll say, you know what? You're right. You know, and they'll be like, well, you're being wishy-washy. And it's like, no, it's just, I guess it's like Walt Whitman thing, right? I'll give it five minutes, you know. <laughs> um, I had an experience recently when my mom was going to throw out a bunch of junk that I had left in her house years ago. There was like a box full of just miscellaneous old crap of mine from when I was a kid and still lived at home. And she asked me to go through it and choose what I was going to throw away and what I wasn't going to. And I decided I was going to throw away almost all of it. Um, and then she couldn't bear to throw it away. So she still has that box of junk. But in any event, I was going through it and I found the little essay that I wrote to get into college. Like when mm -hmm. I was 17, I wrote this little thing, why I want to go to this school. And it was, you know, predictably terrible. But I found it really unsettling. You know, my handwriting is pretty much exactly the same, which is perhaps not surprising. But as I was reading it, I was like, it's, I mean, it's clumsily expressed. And obviously, I speak differently as an adult than I did as a, as a teenager. But what I found really unsettling was the style of the thing was so much like me. I'm like, oh, I've spent years really cultivating these ideas of no self, that the self is this contingent thing, an event, a, a, a concrescence of prehensions, to put it in Whitehead's terms. Um, and yet here I am presented with this durable knot of something, style, maybe, and that I completely forgotten about. I could not even remember writing the thing, but here was this thing that I apparently wrote. Um, this other me wrote this thing, and that other me somehow manages to sound exactly like me. Uh, I, I, tend, I tend to think of it as a story. Um, you know, when you say the self or whatever, is it the story? And like any story, you know, you might start out with a first draft. That first idea or first draft will wind up conditioning everything that comes after it, even mm. if you wind up thinking you're completely rewriting the story. That's funny. I actually had a very similar experience. I um, found a, an essay that I wrote uh, freshman year of college when I was taking a class called Dionysus and the Rites of Ecstasy, um, which I went to Bard. So that's, you know, <laughs> part for the course. Um, like our teacher, you know, threw his back out practicing Kundalini, as he called it, with his wife one night. So, but at any rate, so I found this thing and I, I was looking at it and I realized that like almost everything I'd done since then had started, had started there. And of course it started before there even, but it, like you said, it was like this sort of, you know, germinating sort of idea where, 
you know, four years later, I wrote a novel, Join My Cult, which had a character in it that was based on some of those ideas. And then later on, I put out another novel that had other, you know, and it's just, you know, I've changed in so many ways, but at the same time, you know, nothing has changed. And that's, that's exactly that paradox. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I've had, I've had that exact experience. I found an old essay I wrote when I was probably 17. I've told Phil about it. It was called Myster- Mysteriosophy, <laughs> which turns out to be a word. I've um, and uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I hadn't really, the idea was there. The central kind of contention is the same now as it was then. And, and uh, the writing was, was awful, but I could, I could definitely see myself in there. Yeah. So to me, that's just all evidence for like if I had to position myself in this style, I'm 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 pretty much an essentialist. I think in such matters, uh, I do think that there is a stable, solid self. This is something I find I find funny about us having read your books and whatnot is that I feel like we are diametrically opposed in so many ways, and yet we also agree. So that's <laughs> you <laughs> <Yeah>. know, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing. There's nothing that anyone has said today so far that I disagree with. Except that I also think that there is a solid self or maybe like, you know, this is kind of what I was trying to get at with Bowie earlier. It's that when you finally see those later interviews with the Charlie Rose interview or where he's being, I think it was Charlie Rose. Mm-hmm. He was, yeah. He's being so real, so authentic, you know, and to use a problematic word perhaps, that it's like this is a guy who's earned that mask. The mask is now his face. And um, and I agree that 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 we don't we're not given a kind of like um, knowable self. I think identity needs to be earned. I think the, like James Hillman's idea of soul making becomes important. In a way, you kind of have this virtual face that you kind of have to bring into the world. But once you've brought into it, it was always your face. Yeah, right? I, think I think there's something to that. Although with Bowie, it's also worth pointing out that he was playing the role of Bowie whenever he was in public too. So there's that flip side of it. Was it he? Yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like it's 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 hard. Yeah. So maybe I was just fooled by the authentic David Jones Bowie. Even if he just reverted back to David Bowie, like he wasn't Ziggy Stardust, he wasn't Aladdin Sane, he was David Bowie. Well, even that was a a pseudonym, right? Right, exactly. It's real. Yeah. Bowie became a sort of like a, it's like a coat rack for identities. You know, he could he could be Bowie and he could be ten different people. Whereas if he was Ziggy Stardust, he could just be Ziggy Stardust for that role. You know, um, yeah. So it's almost like the artist identity versus the characters that the artist is playing, but it's still an identity. Um, I think, but to go back to what you were saying earlier about about Bowie finding a sort of groundedness. I think part of it was to, for him to finally find there's a layer behind that. You know, you have the character you're playing, you have the artist identity, uh, the artist who's creating that character. But then behind that, you have the person who's, you know, at home with their family. And it's not to say that person isn't a character of a sort either, but it's like, um, you know, I think I'm going to forget the exact saying now, but there's a saying in Japanese culture about traditionally about, um, you know, the face you wear in public and the face you wear for your, fa- you know, for your family and your coworkers and stuff and how they're different people. Um, you know, I think it took a while for him to kind of draw those sort of circles and, and be able to, you know, have a place just for him, um, something that could only be for, for him. And so I don't know, maybe there's something to the idea of almost 
getting behind identity, not for true faith, but to get behind the responsibility of presenting an identity and just kind of being, right? Is that sort of... Right. So it's, it's an ethical thing on some level. It's a yeah, question of responsibility, maybe. right? Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's, it, I mean, we're, we're, we're in uh, difficult, to, like difficult terrain, right? To use a and d term. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's like, we're at half movement right now. It's hard to like make any headway in any direction when we talk about these things. I mean, when I wrote Reclaiming Art, I was right in the middle of a, a very slow transition because I... I started that book from from a place of like deep Deleuzian kind of postmodern thought, I guess, mm-hmm. but always with this kind of resistance to it at the same time. So that book was part of a transition that has kept going since then. And now it's like I'm reading like Plutarch and Plato and I'm finding, whoa, okay, well, like there's, I just keep thinking that there's a move that was made at some point, uh, a move that with Descartes, let's say, this famous bifurcation of the two worlds. And that bifurcation of mind and world, self and other, inner, outer, creates all of these problems. And I'm not saying the bifurcation is unwarranted. There's a place for it. It's, it's In a way, it's kind of essential. But in a sense, I can't make sense of why it has lasted so long and been so successful, this kind of dualism of modernity. I mean, my, my yeah. hunch is yeah. that it has a lot to do with Christianity, um, sort of yes. symbolically, um, cause, because of the, you know, sort of necessity in, in, their, in their mythos of, of distinguishing between the sort of spiritual hereafter, um, you know, the soul and whatnot, and, and sort of this fallen world. Well, I, we think you're, I think you're absolutely I'm right. I'm framing it kind of gnostically, but. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think it's Gnostic. I just, Phil and I have been discussing this recently. Uh, uh, Eric Vogelin, right? The political philosopher whose big idea was that modernity was a, a form of Gnosticism and that you could only make sense of it if you think of it religiously as a movement within Christianity. So I totally agree with you there. Some of the perennial questions of modern philosophy only make sense if you've already kind of dismissed a whole other layer of questioning which preoccupied pre-modern philosophers, those questions were never settled. They're just kind of put aside. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to finish my point, then I'll let you guys talk. Uh, there's, Leslie was telling me this morning, telling me about a thought experiment that Douglas Adams suggests in one of his essays or novels. I'm not sure where it comes from, but she says, like, he said, imagine a puddle suddenly waking up. It wakes up, it becomes self-aware and it becomes aware of its surroundings. So it's, the first thing it, it says is, wow, the earth is perfectly shaped for me to exist. You know, <laughs> the earth has been fine-tuned for me to exist. Whereas, of course, we the implication being that we're in that position. We're just like a puddle. We just gathered at the bottom of this cosmos. It's not fine-tuned for us. We just kind of happen there because that's the way that things have turned out. Well, and, but, also, and also those conditions are required for us to exist in the first place. Exactly, yeah. right. The whole cart before the horse thing and all that. But at the same time, it's like that scenario sidesteps the crucial thing, which is that puddles don't wake up. (laughs) Puddles don't become self-aware. And we do. And that's the inexplicable thing. And that's where I find that the pre-moderns were, I don't know, just much more concerned about, not that question particularly, but the inseparability of this awareness and the world. 
that we can't separate the two as two kind of domains. Mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of just taken for granted. Like people call Plato an idealist, but he wasn't, that word idealism didn't exist until the 17th century, maybe the 18th, um, because those isms are all kind of ways of describing positions on a game board that was set up that always presupposes this bifurcation, this duality between mind and world, which I don't think makes sense unless you're a Gnostic, wittingly or not, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I also think that, I, mean, I don't want to go on a huge tangent about Descartes, um, but I think that his sort of thought experiment was also kind of, I don't know if it was misunderstood, but it was sort of applied to everything in a way where it was met within a specific context. And this happens oh, a lot yeah. of times. Um, and it became sort of like the forerunner of an entire, you know, school of thought and eventually, you know, cultural sort of paradigm and whatnot. Um, yeah, he, wa he wasn't a modern himself, right? Right, exactly. He, he falls yeah. back on St. Jerome's arguments for the existence of God. He's still fully a scholastic kind of philosopher. But then you take that one bit, that solipsism at the beginning of Descartes, and that mm -hmm. becomes the kind of the foundation stone of all modern philosophy, whether it's acknowledged or not. And it's in Nietzsche, it's in Deleuze, it's in Deleuze, I think was trying to get out of it. Uh, yeah. It's it's all over the place, you know, it's in, uh, it's certainly in all of uh, analytical philosophy, it's just taken for granted. And that's, that's what I've been just thinking about. So when we talk about identity and self and all that, I'm just kind of hearing it from this space that I'm in right now. And I don't know how, where the space will take me. I don't have to take any final position, but yeah, I don't know. It's mm -hmm. not that obvious to me that there isn't a kind of essence to each of us. It's not obvious anymore. Well, to there's me. certainly a form of authentic, like something can be authentic or, or not, even if it's art artifice. And what I mean by that is, you know, I mean, of course, in your book, you go through this a lot, but but if someone is wearing a mask and speaking through it, right, that's called a persona. A persona is the mask that you speak through. But still, what you're speaking through, it can be true in a context or not, or resonate or not. Totally. Yeah. Which goes back to your idea of story and style, right? Like mm -hmm. Phil was talking about style and you're talking about story, which it loosens the idea that identity is some kind of solid nugget or some kind of atom. And it's more like there's kind of a flow or a wavelength that's you. And well, um, I, was, I yeah. was just thinking about that actually from what you were saying. Uh, you, JF, I'm pointing at right. the screen. <laughs> I mean you, JF. I thought you were pointing uh, at yourself. <laughs> um. You're talking about your own experience of finding your mysteriosity essay and finding this kind of connection between who you are and who you were then. And I forget what you said, but it put a thought in my head that maybe you can kind of reverse the arrow of, I don't want to say causality. I mean, the arrow of time that we all take for granted of necessity, which is the idea that, for example, that 17-year-old version of you or me, to use James excellent analogy. It's like a first draft of something that we're going to end up with in the end. And so it's the idea that like we're practicing, we're rehearsing for the, the final form. And it's very easy to assume that we are moving step by step towards the, the final form, that we discover the final form in the drafting process, in the practice, in the rehearsal. And yet it might also be the case that the personality is the thing at the end that in fact, it's like an attractor. It's the thing at the end that's the cause of all the stuff that happened earlier, not all the stuff that happened earlier that's the cause of the thing that happens at the end. Do you see the, what the, I'm saying? The telos. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's kind of Aristotle's idea of the soul, right? Yeah. That yeah. it's the kind of telos. Yeah. 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 And I guess that's the idea that I'm, I'm kind of trying to think through here, that identity perhaps could be framed as 
something that's there all along, but you don't have it until you've encountered all of the accidents and contingencies, all of the things that didn't need to happen. Sure. Now that I just said that, that doesn't make any sense to me. But <laughs> I think it does. <laughs> but well, it's sort of an ideal. I mean, like like you said, I mean, I think strange, like a strange attractor is a great, uh, at least metaphor for it. Um, to bring it back to Bowie, I think that that a lot of his characters, you know, played this role of, um, you know, although in his case, it was both something he was working towards and something he was trying to cast off. And, you know, I think that's important, actually. I mean, at least for me as an artist, that's been a big part of my process. And it's why, you know, sometimes it's hard for me to sort of, as ironic as this is, talk about it after the fact, because you're working through this problem or this thing that, you know, kind of overtook you enough that you're willing to spend however long to research and write a book or, you know, work on a series of paintings or whatever. Um, and in the process of doing that, it's like you've worked through this thing and you've reached that, as you say, final form. Uh, whatever it is, if it's, you know, it's, it's always, it's always approaching the limit and never usually, you know, actually reaches that perfection or whatever you had in your initial conception. Um, but after that point, part of the process becomes about casting it off and, and moving past it. Um, and a lot of the other artists we talk about in the book are, are kind of examples of people who weren't able to let go of that or who are kind of trapped in it. Hunter S. Thompson, Yukio Mishima, yeah, in different ways were kind of trapped. I mean, Hunter is a great example of it because, you know, Raoul Duke was sort of this persona that he created. You know, I mean, initially it was just sort of to have it just kind of for a functional purpose, but it kind of became what he was known for. At, le at the very least, it was an excuse for his later drug use, continued drug use. And, and mm -hmm. um, so it can be an ideal, but it can also be a trap is what I'm, what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah. Well, something that's interesting about the artistic process that this thinking about identity at, by analogy with artistic process, and maybe not as an analogy, but in fact, thinking of identity as an instance of an artistic process. If I think about artistic processes of my own, I mean, as a, as a musician or, or for that matter, if, uh, thinking about uh, the kind of creative work you do when you write an essay or even a scholarly article or something, the thing that I've always found really mysterious is that there is a figure in the marble for me, at any rate, my experience is that there is a figure in the marble. There's an idea that I have. If I'm trying to develop a complicated idea in an essay, for instance, I have the faintest glimmering of an idea. It's not even an idea. It's more like a direction. I think I know what the idea is when I start writing it. But in the process of writing it, I am undertaking a journey where a bunch of accidental or contingent things are going to happen to me that are going to get me to move this way and that. And it is in that hazardous path that I end up finally getting to the idea that I had the faintest glimmer of at the beginning. But I really can't say that I ever knew that idea. Mm -hmm. That idea wasn't like, it's okay, getting back to that dualism I was talking about, um, which is implicit in a lot of what we're talking about, the dualism between the thing itself and the representation of it. I think a lot of the time we have the idea that writing kind of works that way, that writing is like a mind photograph. I've got this thing in my head and I'm going to take a picture of it in the form of writing and then I will show you the picture. My completed essay will be the picture. If only. Uh, yeah. yeah, if only. <laughs> it, it never works that way for me. For me, the idea is, yeah, it's like this telos that makes the entire process 
necessary. I realize this is very, very teleological way of thinking, and we're in the postmodern era we find ourselves, we're supposed to be unteleological. Such ideas are supposed to be um, a superstition that we have all grown past. And yet, I've never quite understood how it is that I can be working blindly towards an idea that I don't know, but I it's, it's, it's as if I'm uh, like, you know, underground digging my way through the earth and I just somehow happen to emerge in a underground bank vault or the basement of Buckingham Palace. Like somehow I managed blindly to get to the place that I kind of knew it was there. It's like a kind of magic. It's like, it's like I looked in a showstone and it showed me where to go to find a pot of gold and I actually find a pot of gold. No matter how many times I sit down and write something, I never get over the weird magic of that. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder if there's some applicability of that to this conversation about identity that we're having. I think so, that's what, yeah. That's, yeah. that's why I was saying, like, what if we think about the, the thing that happens at the end as the cause of everything that happened at the beginning? I guess that's what I meant by that. I think you, our creative processes are fairly similar from the sound of it, um, at the least. Mm. I mean, it, you know, it might be worthwhile to have a survey of multi, I'm not sure how much it's our personal processes versus like sort of the creative process. Right. But I think there's definitely yeah. something to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel the same. Yeah. That's, that's actually, you've described the process very lucidly there, Phil, I think that but the, all the, well, I mean, you. no modern will give you an answer to that. But, you know, I'll get my buddy Plato here <laughs> and he'll tell yeah, us yeah, why that's happening. <laughs> He's here. <laughs> he doesn't want to come on the camera. Um, uh, but uh, he does have an answer to that. Anamnesis, right? Mm, yeah, it's right. That's, that's the weird, uh, disconcerting feeling I've been having as I've been, you know, reading uh, these ancient philosophers recently, ancient Western philosophers specifically. And just realizing that at least they're actually providing some answers to these things. There's a, so, there's a phrase that's been going through my head a lot lately, and I think it's partially kind of grounded in the illustrated novel I've been working on forever, but um, it's everything old is new again. Right. Um, lately, I've been thinking about it more in terms of sort of the whole retro futurist thing and, you know, sort of how decades come back again and whatnot. But, but it's true in a sort of broader sense, too. Of course, we think of time as a sort of linear progression one thing building upon the thing before it, but it's it's much more sort of windy and tangled than that. And we can definitely find the future in the past in that way. Um, yeah. 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 I'm writing yeah. about that right now. I'm writing about <laughs> um, fantasy fiction as a kind of like, you know, because Deleuze famously compared philosophy to science fiction and detective fiction and in the introduction to uh, Difference in Repetition says a good book of philosophy should be, it should be one part detective novel, one part science fiction. Right. So in but, this but, essay, but make it full yeah. of jargon and hard to understand. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally. Yeah. He, so he puts that forward. He doesn't, you know, spend much time on that. He just kind of drops that idea and then moves on. But um, I kind of took it in this essay and I'm like, okay, well, let's look at some of the implications of that. If modern philosophy is science fiction, what is science, what's science fiction like? And then what's the what's detective fiction like? And then at the end, the idea, the conceit of the of the essay is then to propose fantasy fiction, which has been basically regarded as kind of proto-fascism now, uh, and to look at that as a kind of model for a philosophy of the future, 
which again has that idea of the old is new again because fantasy is always a callback to the old and a kind of yearning for the for this kind of but of course it's, it's a modern idea of the old and inevitable exactly yeah exactly and there is a kind of forward thinking in, in fantasy that I think is useful at least to look at as a possible avenue for philosophical thinking just just to kind of echo what you're saying I think you're right I think that there is there is a kind of, and it can be, it can be misguided. It can be dangerous, but there is a kind of uh, impetus right now to retrieve something that's been lost, to go back into the old, kind of bring something old back, and that can become very atavistic or even kind of regressive. But it can also, I think, be progressive. Yeah, um, the co- constant process of forgetting and remembering too between right, yeah, right. generations. Um, so it's funny because, it, and this is exactly what I've been working on too, since, especially since closing off masks. The, the illustrated novel I was talking about, Tales from When I Had a Face, is right. all about these ideas. <laughs> so cool. it's funny we're still on the same wavelength. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Just like waving at each other across the, <laughs> the abyss. <laughs> yeah. One thing uh, implicit in this is the importance of forgetting. Right. This is something that, uh, this is a motif I feel like I can I can sense emerging from this conversation. And this is kind of a, one of Nietzsche's things, isn't it? The importance of being able to forget, being able to lose yourself in the mask. I mean, to lose yourself in the performance. You know, I, I, I'm inclined to agree that it is masks all the way down, but the insomniac experience I'm talking about is the one where you can't forget the press of the mask on your face. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The, the feeling of, of unreality of self. There's a wonderful book by a guy named uh, Louis B. Sass, who's a clinical psychologist, wrote a book in the mid-90s called Madness and Modernism. And he's talking about the modern, like they're just the cognitive style of the modern as always oriented to reflexivity, to putting the world in scare quotes, to ultimately putting the self in scare quotes. I don't have a self. I am a quote unquote self. And he argues that this can create a psychic meltdown where the mind just becomes trapped in its own hall of mirrors. And he thinks of dissociation, this a, right? Yeah. Fundamental yeah. aspect of schizophrenia, but he also is making a point about intellectual, cultural, artistic history, how much modern art also is about, you know, being aware of awareness of awareness, the, 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 you know, mirrors out to the horizon. And from that point of view, I think Nietzsche's, ideas about the necessity of forgetting that, for example, in the essay, in the uses and misuses of history for life that we've talked about on the show, this is where that idea, I think, really comes into sharp focus. It is not healthy for us constantly to be aware of the performance. Like, again, if we're thinking about actual performance, I'm thinking about musical performance, that's something I have experience with. Um, The best performance is the one where you are hardly aware of performing at all. Yeah, you're lost in you it. Know, I th- yeah, sure. Yeah, you get up on stage, uh, you start playing, and next thing you know, the whole thing is over. You have the most imprecise idea of what's happened. Uh, Ornette Coleman and the liner notes to, I think, Change of the Century says, you know, when the music's really happening, uh, when I go to hear the tapes from the recording session, it's a complete surprise. And the opposite of that, which any musician listening to this is probably experienced this more than once is where you're playing and there's this like little demon on your shoulder whispering in your ear like if you're a classical pianist like I am you're like thinking like okay we're getting to the the bit with the big jump 
You always fuck that up. Don't fuck it up this time. Oh, you got fucked it up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, you know, that that stream of commentary and meta commentary where you can't get over the fact that I'm sitting up here in front of hundreds of people trying to make my hands do this thing. And then, of course, that results in bad performance. And what makes for good art in that context is losing yourself in the performance, like, uh, you know, like Daedalus falling into his own maze. And apropos of this sort of idea of the necessity of, I don't know, finding some way out of this hall of mirrors style of thinking, this way of thinking about thinking about thinking that has the effect of derealizing the self. There's a passage from Thomas Merton's book of Schwanksa. So Thomas Merton, um, I forget what the order he was, but he was a um, he was Trappist. a monk. Trappist. There we go. A Trappist monk uh, and a wonderful writer, and with a great curiosity about Asian religion and philosophy. And he became very interested in Shuangzi. He didn't read Chinese. He was no paleographer, so he found a bunch of translations of Shuangzi in French and German and English and created a creative concordance. So I confess, I don't know what the original passage from Shuangzi is that he is, I think, paraphrasing. But I find that, uh, again, getting past the idea of the representation of this passage is just, if it isn't authentic Shuangzi, it should be. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, to me, a really striking passage. I'm going to read it to you. It's called, When Life Was Full, There Was No History. In the age when life on earth was full, no one paid any special attention to worthy men, nor did they single out the man of ability. Rulers were simply the highest branches on the tree, and the people were like deer in the woods. They were honest and righteous without realizing that they were, quote, doing their duty. They loved each other and did not know that this was, quote, love of neighbor. They deceived no one, and yet they did not know that they were, quote, men to be trusted. They were reliable and did not know that this was, quote, good faith. They lived freely together, giving and taking, and did not know that they were generous. For this reason, their deeds have not been narrated. They made no history. Yeah, that's that's very Taoist <laughs> sentiment, um, one I find pretty compelling. But it is sort of a matter of short-circuiting that impulse to reflexivity. Um, mm-hmm. I think that as artists, we, uh, at least I know I do, um, use a lot of, especially when you're engaged with characters, as a way of sort of bracketing off that sort of, um, as you say, like madness or sort of schizoaffective element of becoming hyper-conscious of these things and, and um, you can almost put it into a character and then have the blessed benefit of being able to to get away from them at the end as opposed to being able to you never get away from yourself, right? <laughs> Even though there's nothing underneath. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a great yeah. line in your in your essay. Uh, let me try to find it here. You're, I think you're talking about, at this point, you're discussing uh, Bowie's famous or infamous Berlin phase, right? When he played with fascist aesthetics and became very interested in in uh, Hitler. Was that the Berlin phase or was that before? I'm not I sure. I thought that actually. was that before. Was, that, that was immediately before. Yeah, immediately before. Yeah. Right. He got really interested in some of these kind of dangerous ideas. And and at one point you quote Nabokov. He said, Nabokov once said, some of my characters are no doubt pretty beastly, 
but I really don't care. They're outside my inner self like the mournful monsters of a cathedral facade, demons placed there merely to show that they have been booted out. And then you go on, you say, this wasn't a stage that Bowie could set until the mid-1990s, as we've already seen. For the artist, the lesson here is clear, always be banishing. This is something Phil keeps saying on the show. It's like the importance of being able to banish, to put things in their place. And um, if there is no self, then I, I can't help but wonder who is banishing. Because <laughs> if the person doing the banishing is just another demon, we're in trouble. <laughs> but like, if there is a kind of something like a, not not a face, but a, a face-like mask, a mask that's genuine enough, the mask that was handed to us first or something, then the banishing makes sense and th- putting things in their place makes makes a lot of well, sense. I think we're also, we also hit up against a problem that's sort of intrinsic to all philosophy, which is the problem of language. You know, so what do we mean by like a self, right? Um, right. You know, the, the claim that there's no self doesn't mean that like there's no one speaking right now or that sort of thing. Um, right. So it's, it's sometimes a matter of sort of distinguishing what, what exactly what we mean by that and you know, what the difference is between our ideas of ourself and, you know, the thing that's having the idea, right? Right. No, I get it. I get it. Uh, but at the same time, you, you're only banishing out of some kind of ethical need. If there was no, hmm. if there was no. Or, or self-preservation need. Yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> yeah. In a, in, a, in a truly aesthetic universe, self-preservation could just as well mean killing everything in sight. I mean, there's no... That was Mishima's, that was exactly Mishima's problem. Right, yeah. right. By everything being truly an aesthetic universe. Yeah. Right, exactly. If you're in a truly aesthetic universe, then the show goes on no matter what. In fact, uh, self-preservation is the last thing on your mind when you're in a truly... You can see, you're, like Dionys- Dionysus, your own dismemberment can be a beautiful spectacle of of mm-hmm. self-realization um I, I kind of start engaging with this but i you know i think it could take an entire book or more in itself to really get to the bottom of it but there's a there's a really complicated but fascinating kind of interaction between aesthetics and ethics yeah um and it's hard to sort of untangle them a lot and i think you're kind of butting up against a li- that a little bit i, I totally it's, agree it's, with it's you fascinating yeah you know? and i don't think we could you know answer that question today but um <laughs> but what, what the reason i wanted to bring that up was just about this importance of banishing which is what as you mentioned uh, what bowie learned down the road because before that he kept forgetting right he almost like one of those characters in those medieval romances who's like the night goes out and he's like riding out to the forest and he's chasing after like i don't know a dwarf riding a cart or whatever and then he loses sight of the the dwarf and then he stops and then he he doesn't remember why he went out so all of a sudden this other thing happens and he gets caught up in this thing and he and that's kind of what happens to bowie right but then eventually he finds a way to ground himself in this world which we all inhabit now in the internet age and there's also that movie Mm -hmm. right Uh, the man who fell to earth which bowie starred in that uh was the i keep forgetting the director um Nicholas Rogue. Uh, Nick, Nick something. Yeah. yeah, Rogue, right. Um, where it's all about this kind of this Gnostic myth of this alien comes down and forgets uh, where he comes yep. from and gets all caught I mean, up. It's, it's yeah. funny because he was, it's probably one of his best film roles. Um, and a big part of it, at least they say, is that he was sort of so coked out at that point and whatever that it was like, was he acting? Right. (laughs) (laughs) His most artificial quote unquote role that he, you know, kind of nailed was partially perhaps because he was 
kind of already there. Already there, um, right. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, what courage it took for him to get lost like that in the end, because he was smart enough to know what he was getting into, I think, at least to... He, he, I, I just think he really is a kind of teacher for us because he was able to avoid um, Mishima's fate and Hunter S. Thompson's fate because he learned to master this. I don't know. It's, I was watching those last videos and he just seems like he's completely in control. He's like truly like the magician on the on the, the first tarot card, right? He's just yeah. completely in control. Yeah. From, the, from the fool to the magician, right? That's the right. whole progression of the Kabbalistic tree, the paths and everything in between. I mean, it's also amazing to think that he was struggling with cancer at the time when he when he did all that too. Yeah. Um, Unbelievable. You know, someone with cro chronic illnesses and whatnot, it's sort of a kick in the butt in terms of like, I mean, yeah, these are difficult or whatever, but, you know, it's no excuse not to keep working. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> if Bowie can do it. Exactly, yeah. working on this book for a long time uh what was it that kind of sparked this this need to to put this book together and to write this this chapter i mean like i said it, it, you know the idea first appeared to me when i was watching the video for black star having already been kind of aware of his previous work pretty well aware and at that point i was already working on tales from when i had a face the illustrated novel i'm working on so i've been working on that since 2013 <laughs> Most the illustrations are holding it up now. Um, and it was dealing with some of a lot of these ideas about identity and whatnot, but, you know, in a more fictional context. And, you know, when I saw Black Star and then, and then a couple of days later found out that Bowie had died and kind of put it in context of, you know, this being his last work, uh, sort of a magical act in a way and kind of connected also with all of the ideas I'd already been working on. You know, I was like, well, it might make sense for me to sort of really delve into Bowie's career. And, you know, what, what's going on here, partially for the sake of getting it out into the world, but also for myself to really kind of more clearly articulate what I'm dealing with in, in the other book. It's almost like the nonfiction companion or something. I don't know. Um, and then the process of researching it and kind of I, I started out actually by going back and just listening, watching through most of Bowie's discography. I'm not going to say all of it because it's huge, but a lot of it. Um, and, you know, getting biographies and whatnot, and then kind of branched out into, you know, what are the thinkers and uh, other artists that are either connected to Bowie or sort of have a reflection on this idea of the mask and the role of an artist in their own career? You know, throughout it, my hope has been that it'll be useful to other artists who are kind of engaging with these same ideas. But there is an element to it where it's like at the end of the process, I say, well, I got something out of this. I hope other people can, um, you know, but it's partially motivated right. by my own kind of artistic, creative, yeah. quote unquote, journey. And just, just to be clear, like uh, there's a piece by John Gray in here, Slavoj Zizek, mm -hmm. Gary Lachman. It's a lot of good stuff in this book. Um, yeah, the interview with Lockman was interesting. Yeah, right. And I think you're right. I think it would be, it will be useful for artists, but it's also useful for everybody, right? Because in a sense, we're all kind of artists now, aren't we? Especially in our pre presenting ourselves online. Right. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and the problems that everybody's facing now with identity and stuff are, are kind of problems that all artists face when they begin a career. 
But now it's just kind of this generalized, metastasized uh, problem that we all kind of have to solve for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the part we haven't really talked about too much, although I guess it's kind of somewhat implicit, is the role of fame right. in, in all of this, because it sort of it sort of accelerates all of it. Um, have you watched BoJack Horseman at all? No, the, uh, a little bit. Anime cartoon. It takes a little while to sort of get to its real points, you know, because at the beginning, they're sort of establishing the character in a way. It's, oh, it's funny and whatever, but it gets really, it has its moments of being quite uh, insightful. And a lot of it, what it deals with is the sort of, you know, as I call in the book, the hothouse effect of forming your own identity in the process of playing a character on a TV show or as a rock star or whatever, you know, it is and how that has this sort of recursive, like sort of backdraft effect on your own sort of self and how damaging that can be. And I mean, Bojack, I think I started watching it towards the end of the process of editing masks. It wasn't really like, you know, involved in that sort of explicitly, but it it was, you know, one of the things where it's like, this is, this is kind of part of what I'm talking about here. Um, that brings up an interesting historical question, which is where do all these things come from? You know, as good McLuhanites, JF and I are probably inclined, perhaps you too, James, are um, inclined to think, well, this is a function of electric modernity or post-modernity, depending on how you view things. Um, it's social media, it's the internet, it's these technologies that have linked us up to perhaps an uncomfortable extent, but it is apparently a bell that cannot be unrung at this point. But it's interesting that the fragility of identity and that kind of weird hall of mirrors quality of it is actually something, there's an interesting book that uh, a guy named Richard Dyer wrote, um, and it is called, what is it called? Oh shit! I can't remember. I can't. Jeffrey remember what Dyer it was or Richard Dyer? No, Richard okay. Dyer. He's a he's an English kind of cultural theorist or cultural studies writer who is kind of the 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 founder, if there is one, of star studies. What is called star studies: the study of stars and media personae as works of art that can be interpreted in much the same way in a humanistic. Hmm, academic department as I'm you surprised i didn't i didn't happen upon that when i was doing research oh well <laughs> it's driving me crazy that i can't remember the name of this goddamn book uh, i've got a, a a pdf of um the introduction sitting in front of me but i can't apparently remember the actual well, let's look title. it up we'll Damn just it. edit it out okay uh give yeah give me a sec here there he is i'll find it before you the race. <laughs> Heavenly bodies. Yeah, that's what it's that's what it's called. Heavenly bodies. So the cover of that book shows a photograph of Joan Crawford fixing her makeup, and she's fixing her makeup in a little like a compact mirror, like a small mirror, makeup mirror, and the photograph is taken as a picture of her standing in front of a big full length mirror. And Dyer starts off this book with a kind of a, not a thought experiment exactly, but he's sort of like, okay, so look at this image. There are actually three different images here. There's the image that Joan Crawford sees in her little makeup mirror. There's the image that she also can see if she looks up from the mirror and sees herself in this full length mirror. And then there's also the image that we see that she doesn't, which is the photographer taking the photo over her shoulder and capturing both her back 
to the camera and the two mirrored images in front of her. And he says, which is the true image? And he says, you know, our eye tracks from one to the other. And, you know, like the makeup mirror image is like much more detailed, but the picture of her looking at herself in the mirror where you see a little bit of her back, maybe that's realer because, you know, we see this unmediated part of her body. There's no mirror mediating the body and the camera lens. But then we reflect, oh, yeah, but this is a photograph, so it's still mediated. And he makes a point that there's no stable place you can say, we've got it. We've gotten to the bottom of the Joan Crawford image and we know what the real bit mm -hmm. is. That's, that's what I mean by mass with mass all the way down in terms of, yeah, exactly. Right. But he makes a really interesting point that he says stardom is above all a mode of spectation or a, a way that we have of interacting with stars. So the, the why I'm bringing it up, because you were talking about fame and, and its problems, that looking from one image to the other to find the real, what's she really like? You know, looking at like entertainment tabloids or things that you read online or, you know, whatever. All of these are different reflections, all different images. And the question is not, you know, where do we finally rest our gaze? The point is to keep our gaze moving from one to the other, to the other, to the other. And it is in that restless renegotiation of image, which, by the way, the star is by no means a passive agent here. The star is, is leading the dance here. And their PR team and everything else. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and stardom is built into the modern culture of celebrity. It starts with the, I mean, you can date it back to the dawn of motion pictures, but you can also push it back even to the late 18th century, where you start seeing publications that are devoted to just sort of gossiping about people who are famous, always asking the same question, what are they really like? And that question always being the tally-ho to this endless steeplechase as we're kind of hurtling over one image after another. Uh, so while it's easy to say, yeah, it's social media, Twitter did this <laughs> to us, from a certain point of view, this is the telos that like two centuries of celebrity culture have been working towards. You know, maybe this was the idea that celebrity always had in its mind. I'm personifying celebrity, imagining it as a kind of God, which, you know, why not? You know, we finally got there. The perfection of Maya. This is what it was always meant to be. Because now we're all playing this game. Right. We're all playing this. That's, that's a great point. Dionysus in the Bacchae, he goes to, um, is it Thebes? He goes to the city and he, all he wants is to be recognized, right? Like he comes over and he presents his profile and Pentheus is like, we can't have this guy in the city and the whole kind of drama unfolds, but it's all about self-assertion and recognition and creating this feedback loop between the self that expresses itself, let's say, and the other that receives that expression and, and mirrors it back. And now we're all kind of caught in this. There's a moment in your essay where you'd say that the, the kind of cruel irony of celebrity life is that the most intimate part of yourself is the least real to everyone, right? And it's like, you learn this on the internet. The more you post, the more you blog, let's say, the more you put out stuff on YouTube, the more there's a disparity between that intimate self that you experience subjectively and what people think is the real you. So it's like, I can't even imagine 
a worse, a most, uh, a most um, frightening question than the one that every interviewer has asked every star in the last hundred years, which is like, who is James Curcio really? You know, like, <laughs> as if you know that, you know, like, it's like the most, it's the most alienating question. You're being alienated from yourself in the moment. There's no, you're in that hall. Of, there's no way out. And now it seems like we're all kind of living that, that story. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, the, 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 the most truth you oftentimes get from people about themselves is when you give them a character. I mean, of course, it won't be like a literal truth. It won't be a direct you know, they're still, they're playing a character, but that's, that's usually, you know, the way, like it gives you the freedom almost to be more honest in a way, um, sometimes without even realizing it. Yeah. Um, even, even in our choice of characters or whatever, I I've been, you know, just mostly as a hobby, but I've been getting back into role-playing games, you know, and I want to make most of it isn't like high art, it's, you know, entertainment, but it's always interesting, both looking at the characters I like playing and the characters other people play and whatnot. And, kind of reflecting on that element of it too, because I mean, even when it's wish fulfillment or, you know, whatever, there's always, there's something in there. And we learn a lot about ourselves when we play someone else. And maybe in a way, I think part of what has been happening, you know, as our internet identities are becoming more and more supposedly tied to our quote unquote real selves, there's less of the ability to sort of play a role, you know, like, a, you know, you could be, you could be fully anonymous um, in some formats, but it's becoming harder and harder. You know, the veil of anonymity is a whole other sort of rabbit hole we go down. Yeah, but you're always but, followed by this procession uh, of your former selves, like what you've said before. Everything's kind of part of this one record, like the Stasi mm -hmm. record that's kept on you. It's got like, this is who you are and this, everything you've done. Whereas like I have a, a copy of that old classic, that underground classic, how to disappear completely and never be found. You ever heard of that book? It's like it tells you mm -hmm. how to yeah. – nobody could pull that off today. There's just no way to do that anymore. We're just all so identified and surveyed that um, we, it's harder and harder to play at identity, which as you point out, that's, that's actually really true, that it's often when you're given a role – even if it's like not a, a performative aesthetic role, like not necessarily like a role in a play, but if you go and, you know, oh, I'm going to volunteer at the soup kitchen, you know, this Sunday. And all of a sudden you're just this guy working at the kitchen, uh, you know, like you're going to peel the potatoes and you're just doing that. And all of a sudden you're kind of just in this authentic space. You're just being, I don't know, and you're responding to people in a different way and you've been given this role. It's just, it's not any more real than, than a, a role in, an, in a work of art or in a performance. Ultimately, as you point out, it's all masks all the way down. But in a sense, it's kind of by engaging in these in this kind of play that we sometimes find out who we really are. So uh, let me just throw a final question at you because there's one one aspect of all this that we haven't touched on that I think is interesting. It's the connection between art, identity, and and magic. Yeah, I know it's a big can of worms. Oh, just yeah, you could you could dust that off in a couple of well, minutes. Yeah, just a quick <laughs> question before we go. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> We've talked about the danger of putting on these masks. One of the, I think, of the, the dangerous assumptions that we make as moderns is that when we engage in this sort of aesthetic play, when we play with symbols, when we play with signs, when we put on masks, that we're doing this in a vacuum. Like we're creating the symbols, we're creating the masks. Like they don't somehow pre-exist us and we're not already playing with things that have been played with for a long time. And I think that's kind of where for me where the magic thing comes in because magic is the ability to manipulate symbols that kind of are already there. And so you're never actually bringing something ex nihilo into being. 
if you're going to be Ziggy Stardust, well, as you point out, Ziggy Stardust is kind of an amalgam of Jesus, aliens, and Dionysus, and all these forces that have been around and, and exerting an influence on us for a very long time are now involved in Ziggy Stardust, and so you're not fully in control. Is that kind of what you mean when you talk about magic and art? That's definitely part of it. I mean, I think that the element that's more kind of involved in what I actually do as an artist, especially these days, is um, what I consider sort of psychologically alchemical, um, in the sense that like, you know, kind of Jung somewhat got into to alchemy. Um, not that I'm, I really consider myself a Jungian, but you know, still that that idea of, you know, you're playing with these quote unquote symbols, but they're not just symbols. They're a part of you as well, um, as well as a part of everyone else. And that's sort of like the, I guess, armature that you can retroactively affect the world through. But I still think that really at the bottom of it is it's almost more therapeutic in a way, which isn't to say it's just therapy, but like it's that ability to play with these things in a sort of space that we define that becomes... Um, it's almost like it's it, it's a safe space, quote unquote, but it's a safe space which allows us to be unsafe, you know, which is why, you know, why there might be a benefit in playing, you know, a horrific monster in a play or whatever, you know, like it is that you need to go that place and find that thing in yourself um, within that context, which is, quote unquote, not real. But of course, you know, you are engaging with something real. And that's the element of it that probably is part of my work more now. There's also a ceremonial magic element to it, too. Probably the simplistic version of it would be, you know, for instance, the stage is the circle, you know, where you're drawing a space which distinguishes it from the rest of the world and kind of contextualizes your behavior inside of that, you know, within that frame so that you're, again, free to, you know, work within that circle and then banish and leave it and leave those things behind, which you can't do in everyday life, generally. You know, it's like there's no kind of distinction between things. It's all kind of blurred together. Now, there are sort of more, you know, quote unquote, spooky hoodoo elements of, you know, occultism that you can tie into art and, you know, all the weird synchronicities and, um, you know, ways where you, it's like when you're really tuned into it, you almost, um, I don't want to say psychic, but it's like you'll pick up on these things and then recognize it later and say, you know, how did I do that? You know, <laughs> whatever, and that, those sort of mysteries. But it's hard to talk about that sort of stuff that you kind of just have to experience and say, wow, that was really weird. And fun. <laughs> and, and what, what to you is the point? Like, why do you do art? Why are you still engaging with the world in this way, despite <laughs> the coronavirus and everything? <laughs> I was definitely wrestling with that in the course of this book, because there is, um, I mean, I think everyone who's been driven to like, really make art creation a part of their life at least you know post-college <laughs> um oftentimes wakes up and says you know why am i doing this and i don't know if i <laughs> i don't know if i have one answer for it i have i have a hundred answers for it but does that mean one of them is more true than the other <laughs> yeah back at that one um i, I mean i think that the most honest answer is possibly the, the least satisfactory which is that there's a you know sort of it's a compulsion in myself to undo these things um sort of untie knots in my in my own psyche I actually, at the end of the book, I get in, in the epilogue, I get into a little bit of my own personal family history and how my grandfather basically disowned me when I told him I was going to be an artist. And, you know, of course, I can't know this. You can't A, B test reality. Um, but my sense is that it was actually when he told me that I couldn't be an artist and disowned me when it was sort of the hook was really set. And it's like, that's that's what I have to be now, you know. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that's, and then that's a part of the story, right? That's a part of that story of myself that, 
you know, it's, I don't necessarily think about it that often. And yet, you know, without that turn of events, you know, who knows? Of course, it's quite possible he might have not disowned me and I still might be an artist because I was already inclined in that way. But it certainly changed the framework of it. It became the sort of do or die thing, you know, where, you know, there are periods where I was doing the starving artist thing and just like, well, I'm going to do this and, you know, either it's going to work out or I'm going to be dead. Right. <laughs> you know, and that was, I was, that was more when I was young. I was still pretty young then. It yeah. was like, you know, early 20s or whatever. But, um, and yeah. do you think that there's a social function for art, a social a usefulness? Oh, God. Yeah, definitely. Unfortunately, our society doesn't really recognize it. So it's this kind of constant struggle to prove our usefulness or whatever. But art and media are so intertwined now and corporations are so intertwined with it. It's hard to disentangle these things, but it's quite obvious. I mean, how well is people's quarantine going to go if, uh, you know, they have no movies to watch, no books to read? Um and so on. So even in that sort of basic way, but it's not just entertainment, of course, it's also a way for us to engage with those sort of dangerous places that artists have gone. And then as the audience, you're able to basically go there without taking the same risk <laughs> to your psyche. <laughs> Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>